Speaking of art, uh, have you heard about professional repro artists in the art world? You know, you heard about this? Like Lee Israels? Uh, not necessarily. That like the the thing where like you have say a Picasso or a uh, Monet or something, and you don't want to hang it in your house because it's worth twenty million dollars, and in case like your kid flings like spaghettios at it. So these people they make an identical copy of that painting, and that they put that one on the wall, and then the other painting goes into like cold storage in a vault somewhere. Remember when Gitman? made like they printed on Gildan t-shirts my other shirt is a Gitman do you remember no, those I, I vaguely remember that it this sounds great this sounds like the art equivalent like they might as well have just hung up like a poster and been like I mm. do own a Picasso you can't my see my other it. car is a Millennium Falcon yeah like one of those things no I honestly I didn't know that there was like a full market for reproduction artists yeah, very much. That like you put it up on the wall and go like, "This is my Gauguin," but it's not actually your Gauguin. It's some you know very talented MFA that is just reproducing Gauguin, so you can show it off to your your wealthy house guests. So, do you tell people it's fake, or do you tell people it's the real one, or do you like? Because I'm wondering why it needs to be good. Like you could just do like a stick figure like rendering and be like, "The real one's in safety deposit box. You don't get to see it." Yeah, well, like that little JPEG like image not found. Yeah, uh, <laughs> a catch for. Uh, but that's the thing that just sort of uh, plays into what we're talking about today is like the, the difference between the genuine article and a reproduction. Like, does it matter? You know, if, it, if they are both to the point where you can't tell the difference between them, like, does it, does it matter? Or what if the reproduction is technically better than the original? Which, like, in the, in the fake footwear world like the like the when yeezys were going around and stuff there's such a weird one-to-one community like that's what they call them right the one-to-ones mm -hmm. because a lot of times in like even in like the fakes which aren't reproductions those are just straight up ripoffs they'll have access to the same wholesale material so they'll just make the shoe they'll have the exact design because they were like pitched on the shoe and stuff and it's like oh these are the shoes and but it wasn't made by the company no, but it would be made that's, by... That's the only difference is yeah. that it, it's, it came from a different factory. It's Maybe even, even with it's, the same factory. I was going to say it's even more negligible a lot of times because a lot of times Adidas will have used the factory in the past and they don't get the, the contract or something. And it's like, oh, we'll just make the shoe and put it on, you know, whatever, like the Alibaba hosted fake site until they get pulled. Yeah. And like, does the authenticity there matter? Does it really matter if you're buying it from Nike or you're buying it from, you know, some seller on uh, wholesale on Alibaba? Yeah. Drop well, especially if like, if, if the materials and the integrity are the same, right? It's like, mm -hmm. what are the materials and the integrity are better? Then that's an, that's a, it's an interesting argument, right? Because it's like, if the goal was to get the best thing you possibly could, then wouldn't the better made better articulated, whatever you want to say, better constructed piece. It, it seems like an objective metric at that point. Like who cares who made the first one or how it was made? If the new one's better, the new one's yeah. better. Like, I wouldn't go drive a Model T instead of a Ford Fusion just because it's like, well, you know, the integrity of this wood paneling on the Model T. Uh, this is a thing that William Gibson said in an interview we did a few years ago is authenticity doesn't mean much to me. I just want good in the sense of well-designed, well-constructed, long-lasting garments. So it's like, do you go with the original or do you go with the premium model, even if the premium model is essentially like a better made ripoff? There's no originality, but there is craftsmanship. 
Yeah, and it also does seem like, you know, in like the court sort of like Virgil open source world sense of it, like there is some originality in what pieces you are knocking off, right? Like you have a catalog mm-hmm. of probably 10,000 designs. If you're doing a good one, that's that's in and of itself, I think, uh, indicative of some like at least creativity or, or taste at the very least. Yeah. Taste. Taste. <laughs> Can't see me doing finger quotes around Virgil taste. Welcome back to Blowout. My name is David. I'm Reed. And we're here. We finally made it, Reed. This is the last episode of our History of Denim series. How many did we do? This is, this is lucky number 13. We did a baker's dozen. The baker's dozen. This is about, uh, I think when this is done, it'll be maybe seven hours total of, of audio content about the history of denim. Get you to, from New York to Hawaii, just listening yeah. to denim content. It's about, you know, half of what Dan Carlin said about World War One. So I think we're, I think denim's about that relevant. About half as relevant as World War, I can deal with that. I, yeah, don't, know, I don't know if we're under or overselling it, to be honest. We started about 500 years ago in, in history, although it feels like that in time a little bit. Um, and we covered textile records from medieval Europe, technology defectors in post-colonial America, gold miners, cowboys, bikers, the civil rights movement. We even did Eli Whitney and the Cotton Gen, and we're now here to polish it off with our story of how denim regained some of its earlier luster with the help of our good friends in Japan. Now we can just keep this thing going and going and going, but I feel like this is a good place to cap it off, because if we go past the stories of denim and early, uh, early stories of denim in Japan, we'd have at least another dozen episodes just to get us to the present, and there are so many people in our world still to talk about, and yeah, that's the point where people would start to get angry at us, I feel, because we're talking about real people uh, that are still alive, which is always, uh, it's always a little bit of a risk. But here we are. By the late 1970s, denim had gone totally mainstream in the United States, and it was being made by every brand you could think of. And the offerings of the big three, Levi's, Lee, and Wrangler, had drifted from hardcore workwear to more mass market fashion consumer jeans. This didn't bother many people in the States, but it did get to a few very dedicated people in Japan who we'll get into in this episode. The genes of the rising sun. For thousands of years, man has cultivated the fruit of the Sapindus mukorasi tree to wash their clothes. The emperors of China knew about them. The kings of India knew about them. Now, you know about them. Nettles Denim Wash is a hypoallergenic and non-toxic laundry detergent made from these ancient plants. Nettles Denim Wash. Protect your fades like the royalty they are. Going back to the, you know, that flag of the, the rising sun, Japan was a lot cooler about losing World War II than one might expect. <laughs> Just to simplify things. Like, like cooler than, than maybe... Uh... Uh, half of America about a yeah. different war, <laughs> losing the Civil War. Yeah, so like the and especially after what the United States did to Japan, that the U.S. destroyed pretty much all of the industrialized cities in that country. So like you, you think about the the two nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are the ones that kind of stick out. But uh, there was 
much, much more devastation in other, like all the other cities in Japan from extensive firebombing. We firebombed Tokyo, right? Yeah, like all the cities. primarily constructed of wood. Uh, pretty much all the cities were burned down with firebombs that were uh, helped designed by Robert McNamara, uh, another, you know, uh, agent provocateur in U.S. history. But uh, yeah, he burned down most of the country. But as we also discussed a few episodes prior, the U.S. invested tens of billions of dollars in rebuilding it. Oh, the incredibly simplified narrative here is that the Japanese accepted that they had lost the war for a reason and wanted to learn from the victors in the hopes that they could improve themselves to the point, you know, where they could be a nation that wouldn't lose to someone like the United States in the future. Tough role models. Yeah. You know, like I, it's like learning from the U.S. at any point in the U.S. is a, an interesting ball game. It's one of those things I got to say, it fascinates me because like since we're three years, four years old, where it's like, you got to be a good loser, right? Like that's like a whole, it's like an entire part of learning to grow up. And mm-hmm. in like the history of recorded or like, you know, in the recorded history of mankind, it seems like, like World War II basically produced the only two good losers. Yeah. Right? Like Japan and Germany, piece. Japan and Germany both actually feel bad about what happened. Um, yeah. And, and seem to have learned a lot. Like, not, I mean, and again, like, it's like a weird thing to say, like, learned a lot from the U.S. Because it's like, if you look at 1945 America, it's like we had a lot of learning to do ourselves and still do. Mm-hmm. But at least there was, like, a serious effort to not repeat the shit that got them in trouble in the first place, which I cannot say for basically every other country. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a lot of it was also due to the real effort from the Allied powers to have some equity in rebuilding. And that you didn't have any punitive treaties like the Treaty of Versailles that was you know, designed to bankrupt the losers of the war, and um, you know put the thumbscrews to them for uh, the the next hundred years. Yeah, it's fair. Although they couldn't have a military for a while, right? And you couldn't leave Japan for like a solid twenty years. Yeah, they still don't have a military, and yeah, yeah. I think they're, they're, that was a thing that David Marks was telling us in. Uh, the Take Ivy episode that like getting a, a visa out of Japan was very difficult uh, in the post-war era. But uh, a lot of American culture could make it in. And it was very popular there. You had American movies in Japanese theaters and American rock and roll on Japanese radio. And you had American blue jeans that were being bought off the legs of every GI still stationed on the island. And a couple notes on why this might have resonated culturally that you know, generally in the West were more individualistic and you know Japan was a much more collectivist culture where people are expected to do what is best for society as a whole rather than what might fulfill them personally. Um, sort of see why uh, all the countries that are doing well at coronavirus and all the ones that aren't. Um, but you have that like you know salaryman archetype of someone wearing generic black suit and working inhumanely long hours because like that's what's culturally expected with of them. And you can contrast that with movies like, you know, The Wild One that we watched and Rebel Without a Cause that showed these individualistic anti-heroes that rejected society for their own identity needs. And in Japan, like, you could see why this would be an appealing fantasy because they were leading a life, uh, you know, leading that kind of individualistic life might not have been possible, but wearing the jeans and sort of dressing up and pretending like it was much more easily achievable. Is this the first, I got a question, so is this the first instance that we can find besides like the dude ranch thing, which seems very contrived um, in retrospect, but like, is this one of the first examples of like, uh, appropriation is the wrong word, but like 
really taking something out of its original context, kind of like now now we'll see workwear like Carhartt jackets on stockbrokers. Yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely there because like the jeans and denim have never been used as work pants or workwear in Japan. It was always something that arrived as a like foreign cultural novelty that was done as casual wear. So like you, you would never see someone like or you know, like a construction worker in Japan wearing jeans. Uh, initially at that time um but yeah it, but like his jeans were entirely a luxury commodity and you're getting hands on jeans was very difficult uh in like post-war japan that you know they either had to have them imported um which a couple of businesses did but they were prohibitively expensive for most workaday japanese people which was like you know close to half a month's salary for a pair of jeans um, because, you know, they were still rebuilding all their infrastructure, uh, that was destroyed during the war and shipping around the world, like in the late forties and fifties was much more expensive than it was uh, today. So they couldn't get American style jeans as easily there, but there were a lot of Japanese knockoff jeans that were indigo dyed, like, uh, Momohiki farmer pants. You know, the ones that have like the two ties that go over and sort of have like a drop crotch. Yeah, there's a brand called Perspective Flow based in LA run by three Japanese brothers that make uh, just a straight up pant called the Momohiki pant. That's a classic. That's the one. It's a classic Momohiki design. If so anyone's would looking take, for them. Yeah, they would take the Momohiki, these uh, uh, Jap- like early Japanese jean businessmen, and they would just like put a zipper on it and dye it indigo and say, these are jeans. And they would cost like one-tenth of what uh, imported American jeans would cost. I kind of like it's like when you used to like just write a number on a T-shirt when you were a kid and be like, "This is a jersey." Mm-hmm. Hey, it works. You're not wrong. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it is what you want it to be. So they were doing this because uh, Japan didn't have the manufacturing equipment to make American-style jeans. That like textile mills in Japan were originally tooled to make like fine, uh, like sort of luxury fabrics for export. And the heaviest fabric they could weave at the time was about six ounces, which was you know half the weight of even midweight American denim. And the like Japanese traditional indigo dyeing techniques didn't leave the the white core like American rope indigo dyeing, so the fabrics that they had would not fade like traditional American jeans. A man named uh, Tetsuo Oishi had uh, the idea in the '60s of importing American denim fabric. So he could make more affordable, authentic style Amer- uh, jeans in Japan. And so he reached out to Cohen Mills initially, the supplier of Levi's, uh, to draw- buy like B-grades and you know, offcuts, but they shot him down. But one mill, Canton Mills in Georgia, agreed uh, in 1963 to send him some fabric. And Oishi launched Canton Overalls uh, in ni- 1963, which were likely the first Japanese-produced American-style jeans. That We have an article by the veritable David Marks on Heddles, uh, where he goes into this story in much greater detail. Uh, it's, uh, a couple other Japanese brands popped up after that, including names you might recognize, like Big John. There it is. And Edwin. It's important to note that these were not premium luxury import type jeans that we typically associate with Japanese denim today, but they were cheap knockoffs made to be more accessible to the Japanese market. Um, just like I was saying before, you know, Japanese perception of jeans was not as a workwear fabric. That was more like the Momohiki. They were purely a foreign novelty, uh, like sort of like wearing, you know, a, a naragi in the U.S. is 
completely divorced from its original context now. Makes sense. You're just a guy that probably likes anime. You're not, you know, a a, a rice farmer. I went like there was a time when I was rocking. I had a Naragi from Brain Dead that I really liked. Um, and I remember feeling a little weird about it, but also I was like, I don't know. I feel like there's just like a lot of crossover between the workwear, the workwear styles of both like Japan and America at this point. Like, cause ours definitely mm-hmm. just like fashion wise. I mean, infused there's like uh, blue, blue Japan. When we used to stock them at union made, that was like entirely like Western like traditional Japanese fabric or uh, clothing designs. But then they would do these like entire runs of Western designs, which were just like straight up French chore coats or like, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, a, like a classic pleated trouser or, you know, like these, like that were just like very classic. They would do American designs too. Like, you know, just sportswear, like, like basically a Russell athletic hoodie, but instead of the Russell logo, they'd have like a weird blue, blue patch. And like, um, it was just sort of fascinating to me where it was like, there was this like interesting crossover. So it was like, it would make sense that the Naragi or something like that would work with if you were wearing other Japanese stuff. It was like, you know, because like it was like they'd take an American design and mash it up. But then after a while, it did feel like very much removed from context. I don't think I've worn it in years. That's that's sort of how jeans were perceived over there at, at the time, as people were making that transition to Western dress. I don't know enough to speak definitively on like dress of. Um, Japanese people like before the war because they were westernizing fairly quickly after Japan opened up or was forcibly opened up by Commodore Perry in the late 1800s. Um, but things like casual wear and things that like more, uh, I don't know, like rural or like middle and lower class people like this, this was new. Oh, this was also the case for the first Japanese denim mills, Karabo and Kaihara which started making their own rope-dyed fabric in 1973. So they, they cracked the code on how to do that and make uh, jeans fade like they did in the United States. But much of the fabric that they used, uh, like that they were making, was used by Japanese domestic like denim brands that could now have a cheaper supplier than what they were importing from the States. But a lot of it was also being exported to other countries, like back to the United States, as a cheaper foreign alternative, that like Japanese denim was originally a value play. Just sort of like, you know, when made in Japan was a pejorative and not a mark of luxury uh, like it is today. Times they are changing. They are. This Japanese denim would not always be relegated to the bargain bin. And we will explore how it transformed into the premium repro powerhouse we know today right after this break. Attention blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. Japan's love of mid-century Americana only intensified as they emerged from post-war reconstruction as an economic powerhouse in the latter half of the 20th century. They imported a staggering amount of used American clothing in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're talking about entire Goodwill stores worth of clothing just being sent over on container ships like every week. Jeans, boots, leather jackets, but also things like you know, tattered flannel shirts and summer camp t-shirts, just like anything with English writing on it, they, they wanted it all. And 
If you remember our interview with Eric Kvatek, the DEA literally thought he was a drug dealer because he was making so much money selling old clothes to Japan. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of other people like him. It's like Cocaine Cowboys 3 clothing. Yeah, that was literally it. That He said he got stopped at the airport all the time because he had like tattoos and long hair and a bunch of cash. Uh, and he was on their watch list. They're like, where's the false bottom in this clothing bag? And he's like, no, I swear to you, it is just clothing. It, it is just pants. <laughs> I heard this uh, anecdote that the costume department on the Paramount lot in Hollywood, that they had this policy where you could check out any clothes you wanted so long as you left the deposit. And a few Japanese guys in the 80s found out about this and they checked out like all the old denim and cowboy outfits that they had on the Paramount lot and they just took it all back to Japan and forfeited the deposit. <laughs> just like, fine. We'll, we'll pay $5 deposit per pair of pants. This is fine. It's a gamer's bet game at some point, you know, like, I like, I feel like they should have looked through this being <laughs> like, why do you want all these like enough pants to outfit? Like, you know, the, uh, you're making Ben her again, but with Cowboys <laughs> like, yeah, we'll, we'll just take it all. Don't worry about it. It's like, well, you, you know, you have to leave like a $3 deposit per pair. No, just total. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, okay. That's fine. That's fine. Vintage was a finite resource, and by definition, they, they aren't making any more of it. And the price on these limited number of like golden era jeans from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you know, before everybody started making fashion jeans and the quality dropped, like we talked about in the last episode, the value on these pants just kept going up. And this got to the point where it was cheaper to reverse engineer these old jeans than it was to buy a new authentic version of them. And Enter the Osaka Five, which refers to the contingent of five denim brands that formed in and around the city of Osaka in the 80s and 90s that established the Japanese repro denim scene that still carries on today. And side note, shout out to a friend of ours, Henry Wong, who supposedly coined the term Osaka Five on Super Future in the early 2000s. I like that. Yeah, he's a good, good, he's a good dude. I hope you're listening, Henry. So getting into the Osaka Five, the first person to have this bright idea and the first member of the Osaka Five was a man named Shigeharu Tagaki, who founded Studio de Artisan, ever heard of it, in 1979, which was dedicated to making authentic jeans. Sort of authentic jeans, you know, authentic new jeans that were made like the old jeans, but weren't authentic jeans. It's that whole you know, mind fuck that you can get into on thinking about this too much. It's like on the NBA.com store where they have the authentic gamer jerseys that are never going to be worn in a game that you can just buy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How's this a game jersey? I just want the one with sleeves. I don't want to wear one without sleeves. I got to wear a t-shirt under that. The Tagaki, instead of making those worn down and acid wash jeans that were popular in the at the time, Tagaki was using raw selvage denim and carefully sourced hardware like cinchback buckles from France. And the most iconic offering was the D01 model, which wasn't a complete reproduction, but it featured Hank dyed selvage denim woven on a 27-inch shuttle loom and a price tag of 29,000 yen, which was significantly uh, more than anything even imported to the Japanese market at the time for jeans. What was that at the time, USD? Like 230? See, I looked that up and like Japanese inflation has been so tiny since the like 86 it increased like you know 29,000 yen in 1986 is the equivalent of like 35,000 in uh 2021 it's kind of fascinating 
Yeah, I was like, whoa, what happened there? I mean, I guess that was when the Japanese economy like totally collapsed and they started over almost in the late 80s. But yeah, it was uh, the equivalent of around 300, 350 US dollars at the okay. time. Um, you know, hard to make that equivalency because you have to go like, okay, what was yen trading at back then? But just like consumer price index, it was about maybe 10% more. They carry the three. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the next member of the Osaka Five was Denim, which was, I, I think it's Denim. It's just denim with an E at the end. And I've always just like anyone else in the West has called it Denim. Um, I definitely thought that, it was Denime, like anime. Denime? Yeah, when I first saw it, I won't lie. That would make more sense. So they would put that like, you know, accent on the E, but I just, I just call it Denim. I'm probably doing it wrong. You know, just like when I was a kid and uh, read Harry Potter and thought it was Hermione. Hermione for years. It, for it years. Took, it took until the movie came out. Yeah. Until we learned that JK Rowling was a transphobe, but that's without getting too far off topic. Just, just don't follow up with your heroes. <laughs> Denim. Denim <laughs> was founded by, uh, Yoshiyuki Hayashi, and was more about explicit repro than Studio to Artisan, that they were trying to make the most authentic version of the mid-century 501. That, you know, like, it, when you see these jeans come over to the States, they've had some changes made uh, to make them uh, comply with American trademark law, but it works a little bit differently in Japan. So, like, Denim was making jeans that had, like, Levi's Arcs and a red tab and like uh, the the leather patch was very similar as well. Uh, so this was just like counterfeit that was made better than the original 501 ever was. And then the next one we had was Evisu, which was founded by Hirohiko Yamane in 1991, which, you know, we're talking about flirting with trademark infringement. The original name for Evisu was just Evis, like E-V-I-S. It was like Levi's, but without the L. And so, like, their red tab would say Evi's on them. They and it wasn't until, yeah, they got threatened with legal action. They were just like, fine, we'll just put a U at the end. Now we're Evisu. They should have gone to the map for that. I love that. <laughs> it was like the, uh, remember when Telesin used to drop the legal red tabs? On yeah, the on the inside, inside of, their, of the pocket. Yeah, I was like those. Chef's kiss. So Evisu, like, we might know them now for having just the most ridiculous, like, uh, weird novelty jeans in the game, but they were originally one of the most dedicated repro brands. And their models like 2000 number one and 2000 number two were one of the best 501 repros that I think have ever been made. And, and then Yamane-san, the um, guy who founded it, he sold the international license. And now we mostly know them with those like gaudy painted Goldwing arcs that like Pharrell wears. A lot going on on a Visu jeans. A lot going on in Evisu jeans. That's like the international thing, and there's a difference between Evisu International and Evisu Japan, and all these other like licensing rights that are happening under the surface of uh, Japanese trademark law. But um, moving on, podcast the Japanese yeah. trademark law podcast. Oh, we'll have that one. That'll be the the appendix to this episode. It'll be five five hours long. Yeah. Oh, this is just getting into the 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 first. Levi's trademark lawsuit in 2007. But beside the point, we'll save that for later. We have a full count, which was started by uh, Mikiharu Sujita after he left Evisu in 1994. He was one of the, the first people to, to start Evisu as well. But full count's emphasis was on making comfortable jeans 
for casual wear. And they also had a baseball theme. That's why they're called Full Count. Respect the baseball theme always. And that, that comfortability aspect on them was like they were one of the first brands to use Zimbabwe and cotton, which was like this long staple souvenir, uh, very hard wearing and very soft coffin, uh, cotton that made uh, full count jeans much more comfortable, but also had, you know, a little bit of uh, morality questions with it because you could only buy the by Zimbabwe and cotton from Robert Mugabe, who was a horrible dictator that oppressed the citizens. But again, another another podcast. And finally, we've got Warehouse in 1995, which was founded by the Shiotani brothers. And the philosophy of Warehouse was to improve upon the minute details of vintage jeans so that you know, they looked at the old uh, uh, 501s like Warehouse did, or not, sorry, like Deneem did. And Warehouse was like, okay, here's a few things that we can, rather than doing rote reproduction, Here's a few things that we can do, but do them better than what uh, the 501s were. So they like had a higher stitch per inch count. They used deerskin leather on the patch. They had iron buttons. You know, it was a, a a classed up like you know Levi's Plus type thing. Whereas you know Denim and other brands, they they like intentionally put in manufacturing defects to try to be authentic. A warehouse was trying to make them like say, eh, we probably don't need those. Let's just make them better. Which is fast. It's like a, instead of using the existing work as the roadmap, which these others, it's like they were using it as a foundation being like, it's, there's the story about like Central Park and Prospect Park where like Prospect Park in Brooklyn is, is Central Park without the mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's like the source code. Yeah, like and, he used the saying, source like, code from Central Park and was like, "Well, all that stuff sucked about it, so let's fix it here." Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that was sort of what uh, Warehouse's philosophy was in making jeans, and you know, th- those are all the Osaka Five brands, and they're still around today. You can still buy jeans from all of them, um, and I think pretty much all of them are available in the states. Like uh, Blue and Green was the the first store to import them and i think their their brand list might have changed a little bit as they fluctuated but yeah all those like denim brands are still around and still producing jeans today yeah they have most they've and they've also you know added a blue and green in particular they've sort of kept adding you can get pure blue or samurai yeah and samurai and yeah uh, eternal and like they had skulls and crazy capital uh, selection if you want a jacket with 72 buttons on the placket like that's the spot. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you, that's what you need. You just like, I don't have enough to do today. I'm just going to unbutton my coat. <laughs> that'll but, take, uh, that'll take me till 4 PM. <laughs> so now you might ask, like, there's all this talk of, uh, Osaka, but what about Okayama? I keep hearing about Okayama and Kojima. What about, so what's going on over there? Yeah. So the deal there is that pretty much all the Osaka Five brands ran all of their production out of Okayama. And uh, the, the town of Kojima, which was uh, in Okayama Prefecture, and the whole reason like Okayama and Kojima are a thing for denim is that that was the base of Big John, which uh, was the denim brand we mentioned earlier, which did more volume than all of the Osaka Five put together. And uh, Big John had been around for quite some time, and they originally made school uniforms. But in the 70s, they decided to go all in on making jeans. It was a very bold play. And 
uh, because they were based there, like all of the infrastructure developed around their headquarters, including a lot of the weaving. Did the entire like school infrastructure be like, what do we do now? Like the people who were buying those uniforms, if like upon that pivot? I didn't find too much like to to read up on that about like what happened to the school children and their uniforms. It's immediate hard pivot. I imagine there was a hole. <laughs> Yeah, as they were making these original um, school uniforms out of synthetic, like, Vi nylon, that was just this, like, plasticky stuff that melted. Um, sounds terrible. Yeah, it sounds, sounds terrible. So hopefully the, the Japanese school kids got something better after that. Just based on, you know, the, the animes that I have watched, Japanese school children still wearing uniforms. So when other, Japan, or when other brands in Japan needed jeans made, they would go to the mills in Okayama to buy fabric and the workshops there to have them made into jeans. And several of these mills and sewing workshops eventually started their own brands. So like in 2001, the workshop Capital with a C started their uh, in-house line, Capital with a K, with the owner's son, Kiro Harada, as the lead designer. Capital, the denim workshop, was originally called that because Kojima was the denim capital of Japan. In 2005, the Collect Mill Group launched Momotaro Jeans and later Japan Blue uh, as their house line as they were making denim and they figured, oh, we might as well just make our own jeans and vertically integrate here. And that's why we have you know, Momotaro, Japan Blue, and Soul Live. And they've got another one now that escapes me. Soul Live has sneaky good stuff. It's very good stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's sneaky. Like every time I see a piece of mine, I'm like, that's cool. What is Soul Live? Yeah, and it's not you know uh, crazy expensive in the same way that Capital and uh, like Visvim can be, but it has somewhat similar aesthetic. No, yeah, on uh, there's a store in Cotton Sheep. I feel like I've mentioned before they don't really have an online presence in San Francisco. They were the first American Capital account, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Very good store. Very it's, good store. It's incredible. Like that, if you're ever in San Francisco, go to Cotton Sheep and don't leave. Just like stay there until they kick you out. Um, but they used to have. Soul Live right next to their capital and Visfim, like it was, just, and it looked like just right at home. So today you can visit Kojima Jean Street and a lot of the shops, uh, uh, in the shops of a lot of local brands. That you know you can go into the Capital Store and the Momotaro Store and the Kamikaze Attack Store and like all these different uh, jeans brands have a presence there in Okayama and they're cute details like they've got. You know, jeans strung up like in the middle of the street, and there are selvage lines on the uh, like on the the gutters, and you can get blue denim blueberry ice cream. It's just all have, in on on the denim theme. Yeah, I have not visited yet myself, but it is definitely on the bucket list to go eat some uh, denim ice cream and get my fingers blue from uh, dunking in the indigo tanks that you can do at uh, I think it's the Seto store that has the big indigo tank. We didn't. An article a few years ago with one of our guys who was based in Japan did a, a, a tourist visit that I got to live vicariously through. So after some 500 years after the first recorded mention of denim, you can now buy novelty frozen treats themed after it on the other side of the world. What did we learn in between? It was about the friends we made along the way. Kind of, yeah. I, I, I think we, we made some friends, but uh, yeah. I think the, 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 the the goal I think we had for this whole series was to not just show how denim developed over the, the course of history, but also as a cultural cipher um, to try to understand a lot of what happened along the same time period. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating how it almost always stumbled backwards into relevancy. 
Like it mm-hmm. never, it's like no one ever actually wanted denim to succeed. And it always kind of did, you know, in a weird sense, it was like, it was like a throwaway fabric that the, you know, like the WPA and triple C were just like, let's just outfit everyone in or, you know, like, and then, and then it became war fabric. And then it was like the, the material of, you know, like the young rebels or whatever. Then it became throwaway stuff that was treasured by the Japanese. But it's like through that all, it sort of continues. It's like, yeah, no, it keeps on ticking. Yeah. And it's just a thing that it persisted. And, you know, we said this in the very first episode that there are 6 billion pairs of jeans made every year. It's like one pair almost for every, you know, man, woman, child, uh, every person uh, on the planet. And with David's clothing consumption, it's actually more per person just because he is not contributing whatsoever to that average. This is true. Is The average American owns between six and seven pairs of jeans, and uh, I own uh, one that I wear regularly. It's an impressive feat. Yeah. Are, you, are you ever going to post those on the Fade, the Fade Friday or Fade of the Day or anything like that? Or are, we just, are, are those a personal pair? I, I, I posted the, uh, the last pair of this same model that I had. That was a Fade Friday. What what um, model is it? If you don't if you don't mind sharing with the folks, Real McCoy's nine nine one BK, which is yeah. another Japanese brand that is very dedicated to you know improvement on old reproduction. Yeah, they're like down to the stitch, huh? They do some real cool stuff. Yeah, so I had a, a pair before this one that I wore for three years, and I'm on about two years on this pair. Um, yeah, they they make the 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 model that I like. It's a black pair, just occasionally. So I'm I'm waiting so I can buy another one. See, you're just you're really not doing your part in the six billion consumed pairs of jeans per year. No, and everyone else is, and they they really shouldn't. But that's denim. We got so close to it, it's sort of hard to see the macro picture again about how ubiquitous jeans have become and the long and winding road that they took. But and thank you for sticking with us as we covered this over the last six plus hours. I had a fun time. I did too. Yeah, it, it, we could keep going, but it seems like a nice book into the accepted history. And we will continue to cover denim related history stories, you know, in, for as long as we are physically able to do so. But uh, yeah, this is the uh, abridged history from, you know, the year 1500 until about, you know, 1990. We could have ended it like Lord of the Third Lord of the Rings movie that ends mm-hmm. seven times. Um, yeah, it ends on us like getting on a boat and going over to Japan. Then somehow there's a last scene where one of us is writing a book. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it, it seemed like it was the right place to cut it. Yeah. So if you like what you heard, uh, why don't you leave us a review? Why don't you tell other people that uh, they should listen to us for, you know, almost a full work day just talking about pants? Or you could just email us a kind thing at uh, blowout at heddles.com. We're, we're open to suggestion for what we do next. We've got some ideas, but uh, if you have any suggestions, welcome to hear them. And those of you who have messaged us, thank you. It does make us feel nice. Always good to hear from you. I'm David. I'm Reed. And we will catch you next time. <laughs>